Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. This is Nick Moran, and we've got a great episode forthcoming today. Today, we're talking blockchain investing with William Mugayar. In part one, we will talk in detail about the blockchain itself and impacts it may have. Subsequently, in part two, we will focus more on the startup investment side and William's thoughts on ways investors should think about early stage companies with regard to the blockchain. Questions covered in this installment include the interrelationships between Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the blockchain. Why applications for the blockchain extend well beyond just cryptocurrencies. The key elements of the blockchain stack. Examples of things enabled by the blockchain. Key impacts the blockchain may have on the consumer side. And also the major potential impacts for businesses and how they will approach innovation around the blockchain. Lots of information forthcoming in this episode. Here's the interview on blockchain investing. William Mugayar joins us from Toronto. He's an entrepreneur turned investor, startup mentor, advisor, blogger, and analyst. William has emerged as a blockchain thought leader and is currently writing his new book, The Business Blockchain, due in April of 2016. William, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, can you start off by telling us about your background and how you became involved in both startup investing and also studying the blockchain? Sure. I've been in technology for uh, close to 34 years. So my first interaction with, with the startup world was when the internet came along in 1995. And that was after I had been at Hewlett Packard for 14 years. So I left HP in 95 specifically because I saw the internet as a big opportunity for change and for re-engineering processes and for innovation. So then I proceeded to spend the next 10 years as a, an internet thought leader. I wrote two books at the time. And I became involved with both internet startups and big companies that were trying to figure it out. Then in 2008, I founded two startups, one in 2008 called Equentia, which was a content aggregation SaaS startup. And then in 2011, end of that, I did another startup called Engageo, which was a social media inbox. And that was a quick one after about a year we sold it to Influitive. And in 2013, then I found myself uh, 
uh, at, at a fork again and trying to decide what to do. At that time, the blockchain and uh, Bitcoin started to appear on the scene. So when I saw Bitcoin and when I saw the blockchain technology behind it, uh, it dawned on me very, very quickly that this was really like the internet all over again. So it was like, I've, I've seen this movie before and <laughs> I am seeing a lot of potential in it. And then I, I found myself uh, mentoring a lot of startups as I was leaving uh, Influitive uh, at the time. I, uh, I had a passion for helping others and I became involved with uh, some accelerators and, 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 men and mentoring startups. So I, I, I found myself seeing some deals that were quite attractive. And the only thing missing from me getting more involved was to invest. And, and that's when I realized, well, I could become an, an angel investor. And I started to invest in uh, 2014. Uh, and I'm currently raising a fund so I can invest even more uh, in the early stages. Yeah, I think the first time we interacted was some time ago on Fred Wilson's blog. In the comments section, you know, I've noticed you've been a moderator on his blog for a while now. How did you get started uh, working with Fred and, and moderating that blog? Yeah, that's, that's another story. And, and that story made a lot of headlines in 2012 when I started Engageo because the story was that it started in the comment space of Fred's blog. The story goes is back in 2008, I listened to uh, Howard Linton. And uh, Howard is a Canadian, but he's now living in the U.S. And he is a, uh, an investor and founder of Stockwitz. But his story was very similar to mine a few years before. Uh, he met Fred on Fred's blog, perhaps a few years before me in 2005 or six, And they became good friends from that perspective by just having Howard comment on his blog and, and say, saying smart things and funny things. And it went from there. That wasn't my intention initially. I just thought that ABC was a very uh, insightful blog. And since I was getting into the startup world again, and I wanted to learn about it. So uh, I became involved in ABC uh, in the fall of 2008, just a couple of days after hearing Howard's story. And then one thing led to another. I, I took pleasure in commenting and in interacting with uh, the commenters and with Fred. And then one thing led to another. We, we became... Uh, uh, more closely associated up until a time where knew of my uh, involvement and my interest in the commenting space. And one time, I think it was in the summer of 2011, uh, he surprised me out of the blue. He asked me if I wanted to moderate his blog. And at that time, I said, okay, for sure, yes. And that's when it dawned on me that it was very difficult to manage the influx of so many comments coming in. And then what if somebody was active on Discuss, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Google, and all of these social media places, then it, became, it becomes very, very daunting to manage everything. And that's when the idea for Engageo came to my mind after I got an appreciation of the, of the volume of, of commenting that, uh, that Fred was getting on his blog. And, and me as a recipient, as a moderator, it was a bit daunting. So I wanted a better way to manage that. And that's when Engageo came, came along and we made it as a, as a plugin that looks like a Gmail tab, basically. And we, we made answering social media comments as easy as answering an email. And that's kind of where the idea 
came about. And, and Fred was one of the first investors in that uh, company, Engageo, that I uh, founded at the end of 2011. <laughs> wow, that's a crazy story. Very yeah. cool. But transitioning over to the topic today, we hear investors talk about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and of course, the blockchain. Uh, can you begin by reviewing each of these and how they're interrelated? Sure. Well, Bitcoin is the first marketing arm of the blockchain. It's the visible thing that we all uh, know about and, and hear about. And that's the first thing that I heard in 2013. It was Bitcoin. It wasn't the blockchain. And to, to a layman, to an to a average, average consumer, they will likely hear about Bitcoin before they hear about the blockchain. It happens that the blockchain is, is the underlying technology that's behind Bitcoin. It's what enables Bitcoin to, uh, to, to be alive as a cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin is maybe the first application of a, of a blockchain. And it's one of the many cryptocurrencies that could be living on a blockchain. So the innovation of the blockchain is that you can send money back and forth between people that don't know each other without anybody in the middle. So that money, we call it cryptocurrency instead of money, but because there is a lot of cryptography science that is built into the mechanism for sending that money back and forth so that there is no fraud, uh, so that if I send you a dollar, then I don't own that dollar anymore. Because the analogy today is if I take a photo and if I send you that photo, from my smartphone, I still own the photo. It, it doesn't, it didn't take it out. And, and this is what is called the double spend problem. So what the blockchain solved is the double spend problem, which means that if I send you a dollar, I don't own that dollar anymore. And if I send you a photo that is worth money, then I don't own it anymore. And then you can apply that to any asset and will, we'll get into this in a, in, you know, as, as we talk further. So I mean, today we're saying blockchain but it's possible that in the not too distant distant future, we may not even say the word blockchain. It, it, it's like the internet. We talk in terms of websites. We talk in terms of online shopping. We talk in terms of social media. We talk in terms of the applications that are on top of the internet. But we don't say the internet every time we refer to an application. So I think I predict that in the not too distant future. Perhaps the blockchain term will will gradually be less prevalent in our vocabulary because um, we, we will have a lot of blockchains. We, we will have millions of blockchains, and and I'll predict that the the blockchain is probably going to be growing faster than the internet did back in in '95. So in the same way that today, billions of people around the world are connected to the internet, uh, in the not too distant future, millions, if not billions of people will be connected to the blockchain as well. Is it fair to say that the blockchain enables the removal of fiat currency and one embodiment of that is Bitcoin? Well, I'm not going to go as far as saying that it's going to remove fiat currency. I mean, there are some... Some people that are on the extreme side of society that, that would love to see that. But a more pragmatic and realistic view is that Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as a whole are just another, another type of currency. 
I put them in the bucket of alternative currencies. <laughs> okay. It is, it is just another, think of it as a foreign currency. I mean, there's no currency in the world that dominates another, except maybe for the dollar. That seems to be a commonly accepted currency that by default, if you say, okay, I'll let's trade in dollars, more people than less will be accepting of that. So in the cryptocurrency world, it is very conceivable that Bitcoin becomes uh, the de facto standard currency of choice. And then all of the other cryptocurrencies kind of converge towards Bitcoin. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's good to have one strong currency uh, in, in a space becoming like a backbone currency. Right. Can you talk a little more about why the blockchain extends well beyond just cryptocurrency applications? Sure. Think of a cryptocurrency as just being an asset. It's just an asset. An asset, I mean, what, what's an asset? It's value. What is money? Money is value. But that value could be now represented as a digital asset. And cryptocurrency is digital money that can move. But then now think about the fact that an asset could be just beyond money. It could be, uh, it could be a bond. It could be a stock. It could be a, um, a derivative or a financial instrument. It could be a specific certificate or a, a title. Uh, anything can be represented uh, in, in a digital manner by the value that, uh, that is underlying it. So now think about the fact that in the same way that I can move money so quickly between one person and another, what if I can transfer any asset now between one person to another? So if I'm selling you some rights to a particular stock or instruments, why not uh, have you receive it in 10 minutes instead of three days? So that's where we talk about the fact that the blockchain extends well beyond cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are just one application, are, are one type of an asset that the blockchain is very good at transporting. So the blockchain is a, is a value exchange network, and that value could be money, and that value could be another type of, uh, of asset. You have to think that there's no previous paradigms for the blockchain. Some people are saying, well, it's like a new version of TCP IP. Uh, it, it's not even another internet. It's, it's a new network that is on top of the internet. And uh, it's many things. It's, it's not just one thing. So it's, it's an overlay, but it takes many forms when you try to implement it. Uh, so you can see it as a trust layer, uh, as an exchange medium, uh, as a secure pipe, uh, as a set of decentralized capabilities, or even as a development, as a software development platform. And there's more uh, that maybe we haven't even thought about. Yeah, how would you describe the blockchain stack? And um, could you also help frame it for, for some of the lay people in the audience? Sure. So, I mean, if we talk about the blockchain stack, then you have to talk about it from a software development point of view, because the blockchain is a, I've said it before, is, is another type of database. And uh, I, I said a year ago that, uh, that if you're a developer, get ready to rewrite everything pretty much. So everything that you've written on, the, on a database, you may have to rewrite it. Of, of course, I've, I was exaggerating a little bit to make it up. <laughs> but uh, there are new uh, ways of writing applications now where a, a slice 
of what you would have written on a database now can go on the blockchain. Because the blockchain is also a thin database. It's a, it's a thin layer uh, where you can store uh, data on it. So the different layers might be uh, there is identity at one, at one level. Uh, there are the private keys, public and private keys, which are the ways that you, you, that you encrypt the data. Uh, so typically uh, you hold the private key, but you, you, you could make the public key uh, public. But you need the combination of the two of them to unlock uh, the data. Uh, thirdly, you have the storage. There's a storage mechanism uh, that exists uh, on the blockchain. Uh, there is messaging, so you want to, you want to be able to, to send messages. There are the development languages, and many of them, some of them are inspired by existing languages that we know. Some of them are inspired by Java or by C++ or by Python and others. So these are not very foreign languages. They are languages that a, that a developer would be familiar with, but they have to learn some additional uh, aspects of it if they want to program the blockchain. Then there is the transaction ledger, what is called also the distributed ledger, and that is what records all of these transactions, one after the other. And the way to think of it is like a, an accounting ledger, basically, where once you make an entry, you cannot erase you cannot erase it, and the next entry comes below it. Then there's the consensus method, which is the consensus method is, is the logic that allows the different computers that are validating those transactions to agree on the validity of those transactions. So I'll just simplify it as that. And there are a few methods that are different from each other. Then there is the tokens. The tokens are the, in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency token that has value. So uh, that token is, is like the economic unit of the blockchain that can travel around uh, on the network of computers that make up the blockchain. Then there's mining, and mining is only a valid construct in the context of the public blockchain because the miners are those that own those very high-speed computers that are specialized and that can compute uh, the mathematical equations which validate the transactions. The underlying OGI underneath the blockchain is mathematics, is gaming theory and mathematics. So if you solve an equation uh, after so many computations, then you can validate the transaction. Then two more on that stack, there's the nodes. The nodes are the actual computers that are uh, networked together in a, in a distributed manner. And underneath that, at the very lowest level, is the actual peer-to-peer -peer network, which is really the, the basis of the blockchain. So first you, you erect the peer-to-peer -peer network and everything goes on top of it. And that's it. Can you talk about some examples of things that the blockchain can enable? Sure. Uh, so one of the applications uh, that is getting a lot of attention right now is the exchange of, uh, of assets, of, uh, of digital assets. So the banks are very interested in that because today there is a delay between the clearing and the settlement uh, of digital assets, there is something called T plus three or T plus five. Uh, it means transaction day plus three days or plus five days for the actual settlement to happen between the two banks or the two financial institutions. And that's a long time. And what happens in the meantime, somebody has to hold those assets in custody and that costs a lot of money. So the blockchain can speed up the transfer, the real transfer of assets between, between parties. 
So that would be the first one. Second is the, verif- the verification of assets. So uh, the blockchain can be used uh, as a way to timestamp the uh, actual ownership of a particular asset. And then once you timestamp it on the blockchain, you cannot change it. It's totally irrefutable. Uh, so it becomes an ownership proof or it could become a, a rights proof. It could be a, uh, an identity representation that is totally locked on the blockchain. It's like having a seal that you cannot break, but you can verify it. So that, that's, that's another important application uh, that the blockchain can enable. And um, another one is something called smart contracts. And smart contracts is another fancy way of saying business logic or, or business terms. So uh, you and I can agree on some terms. Uh, let's say we can have a a wager, uh, we can bet that a given sports team is going to win next week, uh, let's say a, a, the Raptors versus the, the Bulls, and then we can encode that into a smart contract, and uh, maybe that would be two, two lines on a, on a blockchain language, and then that's it, the, that contract will run on its own, and the minute the game is played and the score is known, then suppose we, are, we, we were betting on one, one Bitcoin, so automatically, uh, whoever wins is going to receive one Bitcoin uh, or one dollar or ten dollars, whatever the asset uh, was that we agreed upon, and it'll be automatically taken from the account of the person who lost. Uh, but imagine now, this could, doesn't have to be just a wager or a bet. It could be all kinds of rules. It could be, if I deliver this to you on next Monday, then you can get paid the $1,000. And if I deliver it on Tuesday, then you get paid another X and so on. So you can build all kinds of business logic and rules on the blockchain and then uh, bind the execution of those rules uh, between two parties or multiple parties. So maybe uh, you and I can put a third party between us that has to authenticate the fact that I sent you something and that you've received it. So almost like an escrow service. And that service is called multi-sig, multi-signature. But it all happens very quickly on the internet. So the third person could just say, yes, that person has received the uh, merchandise and automatically it triggers payment. So these are the kinds of examples that we can uh, uh, demonstrate with the blockchain going forward. Is it primarily for transactional things between two entities? That's how the businesses see it uh, at this point. But there's another world out there for consumers. Yeah, if you could talk about some of the impacts on the consumer side, that would be great. Yes. So one of them is identity, for example. So if you think about it, who, who controls our identity today online? It, it, it's mostly Google and, and Facebook. They own our identity. But uh, why, why can't we have our own identity ourselves ourselves, and, and then uh, make it transportable, make it portable? Uh, so that, that's one application on the consumer side. And then another one is, back to the previous um, example I was telling you about uh, verification of assets. So today, we, we Google everything for information, right? When you Google, mostly it's for getting information and checking information. But what if we could Google in the future, and maybe it's not going to be Google, maybe it's another company that does this. What if you can Google to verify records, to verify identities, to verify rights? Like, how do I know that I'm speaking to you directly. I mean, somebody could have <laughs> impersonated you uh, potentially, potentially. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trusting you because we've had some interactions, but 
what if I could just be sure that uh, you are who you say you are, or that if you own something and you want to prove it to me, I don't have to go to City Hall to check the archives. What if all of those ways to verify could be done now uh, remotely? So in the same way that, that today we Google for everything, I think in the future we're going to be able to search blockchains, but it may not be called that way. But the analogy is to search for databases of trust, uh, to search for records, to verify authenticity, uh, to verify the truthfulness of records, of, uh, of titles, of ownerships. So it goes beyond information access. We want trust access, access to trust-based services. So that, that's how I would envision this to unravel in the future. So certain pieces of information tied to individuals would be publicly available and others, I would have to assume, would be, would be private. Yes, or maybe it could be unlocked with a private key. Ah, so in, right. The key is, is, a, is a major uh, aspect here. And, uh, but the, the way to use those keys will have to, to come a few notches down uh, from the technical realm. Because right now, it's not very easy to manage a wallet uh, with multiple keys. There's a lot of technicalities into it, but it should be as easy as, suppose I gave you access to my house. Like when you, when you rent the house on Airbnb, I mean, they, give you the, they give you the key and, and then you can go into the house and it's easy, but it should be the same way. So I could say to you, well, I want to check something about, um, and you say, okay, can you give me the key? And then I'll give you a key and then you can check it. And maybe I can say you have access for 20 minutes, maybe. So all of these could be embedded in the blockchain. It's interesting. I use a, a program called LastPass that manages all my passwords. And uh, when I outsource various things to a virtual assistant or a personal assistant, I will give them rights to very specific passwords, but not others, right? I'm not giving them my password to, uh, to my email account, for example. Yeah, so you'll be able to do some of that a little bit more more broadly and with more interesting scenarios. And maybe I can give you access to maybe one piece of data and not the rest of it. So these scenarios will be possible in the future. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Anything else you want to say about impacts on the consumer side or anything 
with regards to your comment about Google and Facebook owning the majority of personal information out there? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I'd, li- I'd like us to, um, to have more ownership of our own data. And uh, the idea is that you can, uh, you can make it available to whoever you're interacting with, uh, but it's your data. And then there's this thinking that if they can aggregate data that is coming from me, let's say, and others, but give me back something of more value, then I'd be very happy. For example, in the healthcare side, I don't think we've done enough in terms of uh, using data, uh, patient data or uh, people data, healthcare data in an aggregate fashion. There are lots of islands out there. Uh, Typically, the data belongs to the provider that you are dealing with, or uh, whether it's a physician or or the uh, insurance or uh, or the group that you're with, but there might be somebody else in another state or another place that has similar conditions, uh, and, and it would be great to to break all these silos and have people share more data. But the problem was that there, there's no trust, and maybe the blockchain could be that trust component that allows everybody to share in a trustworthy manner and without fear, and at the same time being able to get something back in return and that is more valuable. So we talked about the consumer side a bit. How about for business? What are some of the impacts on the business industry and or government side? Sure. Well, the the businesses uh, are struggling. Many of them are struggling. I would say the larger the business, the the larger the struggle, uh, because there is complexity in implementing the blockchain. Uh, First of all, they have to understand it. I mean, if you don't understand something, you're not going to be able to to take advantage of it to the fullest extent that it's possible. Sure. So th- there are two sides of the blockchain when you look at it from a company perspective. There's a disruption side and there is a, a construction side, a, a construct or strengthening side. So either it disrupts my business or I can use it to strengthen my business. And the natural reaction for big companies is to only use the blockchain or any new technology to strengthen what they already have, because everything falls back to their existing models. Companies are not, don't have a lot of flexibility in innovating outside of their business model, because everything has to tie back to their business model. So there's some limitation there as to what they can do. So what they end up doing is, is using new technology to innovate within the walls of regulation or within the walls of their existing systems. I'm not saying this is bad. I mean, it's a great first step because there are lots of cost savings that could happen there. Uh, There are lots of uh, business process improvements that could happen. Blockchain is perhaps 80% business process and 20% technology. And some people might even say it's even more. It's maybe 90% business process and 10% technology. That's when you think about it from a big company point of view, because everything is a process in a big company, as you know. (laughs) I mean, there are big machines that have processes that work, and then they, they become operationally good at executing those processes. And the minute you want to change something, then, aha, they have to think about it. And it takes time. It takes time to re-engineer processes. It takes time to rethink old ways of doing things. So they will take some time to figure out how to insert the blockchain into their own processes. And only when they've done that, that they'll be able to innovate. So it's almost like they have to, to crawl and walk before they can run. So I don't have a lot of hopes for uh, or expectation for seeing 
totally out-of-the-box blockchain applications inside big companies. I think the innovation will come on the outside in terms of totally new fields. But on the inside, it's really at the beginning about cost savings, efficiencies, perhaps speed, perhaps more transparency, those types of benefits, uh, and, and not the ones that are totally innovative and, and new, uh, like opening new markets type innovations. That'll wrap up part one of the interview. If you enjoyed this segment, please share your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you don't use social media, it would be great if you'd tell a friend about the program. And look out for part two of the interview that will be released here this week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time.